0: from the princeton university school of engineering and applied science this is cookies a podcast about technology privacy and security i'm aaron nathans on this podcast we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives from the way we connect with each other to the way we shop work and consume entertainment and we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack, but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, the final episode of our second season, we'll talk with Professor Lori Craner. She is the director of the SciLab Security and Privacy Institute, which has over 150 faculty from across campus at Carnegie Mellon University. Within Scilab, she is also director of the Scilab Usable Privacy and Security Laboratory, which focuses on the human side of security and privacy. She recently became co-director of CMU and the University of Pittsburgh New Collaboratory Against Hate Research and Action Center. Lori's TED talk about password security has been viewed more than 1.5 million times, but today we'll talk about another pesky aspect of our digital lives, privacy policies. Those mysterious terms and conditions we sign off on, often without reading them, before we can use an app on our smartphone or laptop. Let's get started. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. In the year 2008, you and your graduate student calculated that it would take 244 hours a year for an average consumer to actually sit and read the entirety of every privacy policy they encounter. If everyone in America did that, it would add up to 54 billion hours per year spent just reading privacy policies. And that doesn't even begin to account for how well people understand what they're reading. It's now 2021. Is it still 244 hours per year?
1: Well, we haven't redone the calculation, um, uh, but... I would guess that it probably is. Uh, It might even be worse now um, because now we see this real proliferation of third party content embedded in websites. So it's not enough to just read all those privacy policies. You really have to read the privacy policies for the third party content as well. And so I think that's going to really blow up the, the amount of time.
0: How many privacy policies do you typically encounter in, say, a, a given month? And and to what extent uh, d- do you, who actually understands this stuff, actually read the whole thing?
1: Um, well, so I, I don't keep track and I don't read them all. Um, there's just no way. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sure in, in, in a month I encounter dozens of new privacy policies. Um, but I sadly, I, I I can't manage reading all of them. Why not? Um, because it would take too long. Um, and there's a lot of information in there that even as an expert, I have trouble understanding.
0: Is there something that you're able to skim for to, uh, to find the relevant information? Is there something that you typically, uh, that, that that's a red flag. You can maybe do search, uh, use the search function.
1: Um, Well, so I wish I could easily use the search function. And one of the things we found in our research is that there's very little consistency in privacy policies. So there are not um, key terms that you can consistently search for. Uh, You know, we we thought that maybe we would find um, uh, uh, standard terminology about the choices that you can make, because that's something a lot of people want, is to find out, where's that opt-out button? I just want to mm. you know, find out about what my choices are. And some privacy policies talk about choices, and some talk about opt-outs, and some talk about user rights, and you know, they, they're all using different terms, so there's nothing you can reliably search for. Um, that said, you know the things, if I, if I do scan a privacy policy, um, I am interested in choices. Um, I'm also interested in the extent to which my personal information will be shared and, and why it's being shared. Uh, th- those are some of the things that, that I look for.
0: Mm. How often are you able to opt out of the more objectionable portions of a privacy policy?
1: Uh, it, it varies uh, quite a bit. Um, so I, I think there are some some companies that will let you opt out of, of advertising um, and you know sharing for marketing and things like that uh, pretty easily in certain industries uh, like the financial industry um, there, there are requirements and so um, in, in many cases you can opt out of a lot of that um, but in other industries you um, you know the companies are, frankly, you know, making their money from selling your data, and so that may not be an option.
0: Well, a cynic would say that a lot of these policies are designed to frustrate users, to make their eyes glaze over, uh, to make them metaphorically throw up their hands and surrender and click the I agree box without having to read more than a few sentences at most. I mean, is that true? Are, are these policies confusing by design?
1: Um. I think, for the most part, they are not confusing by design. Um, uh, you know, I I go to privacy conferences and there are representatives from big companies that have privacy policies and they have privacy lawyers and I you know I've met a lot of these people and they're not. Evil people, right? <laughs> um, and I don't think they're for the most part trying to confuse people. Um, but I do think that a lot of these companies are trying to uh, protect themselves, um, and so they uh, they want to make sure that they have disclosed everything that they legally have to disclose using all the good lawyer language, and that's their priority, not clear communication with the end user.
0: Mm. I mean, I'm almost afraid to ask this, but if we did understand what we were reading in these terms and conditions in these privacy policies, what would we typically see?
1: Well, I think we would see uh, for a lot of companies that they uh, make money from selling our data for advertising and marketing-related purposes. Um, And, uh, you know, I I, I think... um, Increasingly, people have some awareness that that's happening, but people might be surprised about the extent that that happens. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot in there that, that are uh kind of things that they need to tell you for legal reasons that um some of which probably don't have a lot of privacy consequences um but it's really confusing to see all of that um but but really the extent to which our personal information is bought and sold and traded and whatnot um uh, may may surprise a lot of people
0: when i find a free app on the, uh, on, on on my smartphone. I feel lucky. I feel like, wow, I could get a free metronome. Uh, wow. I can get a, a free Pac-Man. Um, I mean, are a lot of these apps not free at all that they're really making tons of money off of, off of you?
1: Well, a lot of these apps are advertising supported. Not all of them are making tons of money. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the, the popular ones are making tons of money. The not so popular ones are making a small amount of money. But yes, mm-hmm. they're, they're making their money out of uh, selling your information or um, allowing advertisements to appear in their app.
0: Is it just a matter of uh, human nature? I mean, do people care what's in a privacy policy if, if they don't feel like if, if they don't feel like they can get their hands around uh, what's in it? Why will we say, go ahead? Uh, I mean, do people ever just say, well, it's just not I don't understand what this policy means. I'm not going to use it. I mean, why do we consent to this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's a big sense of kind of resignation where people feel like they are not empowered to do anything um, about, to protect their privacy. Um, people, people feel... You know, I can't really understand this. Even if I read it, there's probably some legalese that I didn't understand. Um, And unless I want to just stop using apps and stop engaging in the online world, um, which some people have chosen to do, but most people still want to engage. And so a lot of people have given up and have just said, well, they're going to get my data one way or another. So I guess I'll just do it and not bother.
0: I mean, what's your personal uh, answer to to this sort of thing? And and this is a a, a good uh, bookend to a conversation I had with journalist uh, Barton Gellman earlier uh, in in this season. He was the first guest in the season, and I asked him because he's Mister Privacy. Uh, he uses only the best privacy technology. And I said, "Do you just put it put away your phone so that it won't track you?" And he said, "No, I want to be a full participant." in the digital economy. What's your answer to that? You know that you can't get your hands around everything uh, in these privacy policies. Do you choose to participate anyway? Where do you draw the line?
1: Yeah, so um, I uh, do not take some of the more extreme measures. Um, I do want to participate. I I opt out where I can. I use uh, privacy tools to block some of the tracking. I um, refrain from giving out some of my personal information um, when when I have that option. Sometimes I ask for that option. Uh, I I definitely do those sorts of things, but I still carry a cell phone um, and I turn on location tracking because I want to be able to use maps on my cell phone. And um, so I do things that I know are giving away my personal information, um, and I do it because I want the convenience of some of these services.
0: What are some examples of some good privacy policies? Um, and what are some ways to improve the ones that aren't?
1: So uh, by good, do you mean that they're privacy protective or that they're easy to understand?
0: Well, let's let's take them one at a time. <laughs> uh, go ahead
1: yeah yeah. so um, yeah I, I, I don't have I don't have a, my list of you know my my top ten good uh, privacy policies. They they're, they're um, uh, you know it, it's hard to find you know really um, good privacy policies uh, for um, companies with complex business models. Um, because there's, there's just so much data that they collect and so many different partners that they have. Um, you find the better in, in terms of more privacy protective policies from companies that have a very simple business model. You know, they, they, they sell you some physical good, that's their business selling you that one thing, right? A small business, they're, they're going to have a, usually a more privacy protective, uh, policy, um, as far as, you know, the the clarity of the policies, um, uh, again, it's often those companies with simpler business models that will have the clearer policies. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the more complicated the business model, the more things they feel like they need to tell you. Um, but I have seen some companies that try to um, turn their policy into um, a table or a layered approach where they give you the highlights at the top and then you can click on things and drill down and get more details. And, and that, that's a nice approach. Um, one company that I've seen recently has done this is Strava, um, the fitness app, um, and you know, they, they have a table and they have a bunch of questions and it says, yes, no, yes, no, we do this, we don't do that. And then you can click on those yeses and nos to get the details about why they do or don't do you know, e- each of these things. Um, There's another company called Juro that um, does online contracts, um, and they have uh, a really nicely designed uh, top layer that kind of summarizes their uses of data. And again, you can click into it uh, to get more detailed information.
0: You're listening to Cookies, a podcast about technology, security and privacy. We're talking with Lori Craner. Lori is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science. And engineering and public policy. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton's School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and our future, including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, back to our conversation with Laurie Craner. Well, at least websites that have confusing privacy policies have a privacy policy. Uh, we are rapidly moving into an Internet of Things world. Uh, do users of these devices have an opportunity to read up on the privacy trade offs before they use, say, their smart thermostat?
1: Yeah. So, um, IoT devices uh, pose a, a big problem for understanding uh, privacy. Uh, certainly, if you walk into a smart building and there are smart light bulbs on the ceiling and smart thermostats, and you know you walk by drones, like th- there's no way to find out about their privacy. You can't like stop the drone flying by and ask it for its privacy policy. Um, so, so that's uh, somewhat problematic. Um, when you're going to buy an IoT device, even they it's problematic. Um, if you walk into a brick and mortar store and pick up um, an IoT device, a smart thermostat or whatnot on the shelf, um, you can look on all sides of the packaging, and most of the packages that I've looked at say nothing about privacy on them. Uh, and then, you know, if you go uh, online to you know Best Buy or Amazon or a company like that and try to buy these IoT devices, they've got all sorts of information um, about you know what protocols they follow and you know, how much they weigh and their dimensions, but pretty much nothing about privacy. Um, so there are some manufacturers that on their website you can find a bit about privacy but that's about it
0: why do you think that is why, why do my apps have a privacy policy and iot does not is there some sort of legal requirement
1: um i think that uh iot is um it's been kind of unregulated and um there hasn't really been the pressure to do that yet um but i think that's about to change um, there, there uh, is um, pressure from regulators to uh, disclose information about both privacy and security of IoT devices. There was actually a White House executive order issued just last week that mentioned this idea. Um, NIST is looking into it. Uh, so um, I, think, I think that that may change and we're doing some research at Carnegie Mellon um, to help move us in that direction.
0: Do you happen to know whether that kind of regulation would require an act of Congress?
1: Um, uh, So, you know, the the most straightforward way for it to happen would be for Congress to pass a law that would require some sort of privacy and security uh, labeling on devices. Uh, I don't know the extent to which um, an executive order can mandate something like that.
0: Mm. So speaking about a label, so you, you've you been working on an Internet of Things nutrition label, so-called, to help people better understand the security and privacy features of these amazing new devices. Can you tell us what that kind of label would look like and whether the manufacturers of these devices are are willing to use them without being required to?
1: Yeah, so um, we did a lot of research into what information you should put on such a label. Um, And so um, my students interviewed experts in IoT security and privacy. Um, They did studies with consumers to find out what information they wanted to know. Um, And we came up with drafts of a label and then we did consumer testing. Um, and so we have a label design which uh, has two layers. Uh, the top layer is designed really uh, for simple information for consumers, and it tells you about what kinds of information the IoT device collects and uh, what what the purpose of its use of this data is and whether it's shared. And there's a little bit of information about security as well, um, about whether... Um, uh, you can set a password on the device and things like that. Um, and then there's a link and a QR code to take you to the secondary layer that has um, about 47 different pieces of security and privacy information in a lot of detail, um, which is going to be useful mostly for experts, um, but, but some consumers may want that information as well. Uh, so you can, you can check it out on our website at iotsecurityprivacy.org. Um, you can see an example of this label.
0: Can you get this information without the participation of the manufacturers?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it's going to require some participation from the manufacturers. Uh, we um, spent some time um, trying to get some of this information and constructing these labels ourselves for some popular devices. And we, we had some students go and like read all the manuals and try to get all the information they could. And there's certainly some information that we could get out of that. But to really f- uh, fill out the full label, we need the manufacturers to do it.
0: So we've already talked a little bit about regulation so far. Is is there any other work that we haven't discussed uh, that needs to be done in this uh, area generally?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, regulation would certainly help with the adoption. Um, there are other paths to adoption as well. Uh, you could have, um, you know, the, an industry group uh, uh, declare a label as a standard. Um, you could have some of the big retailers basically say, hey, if you want to be on our store shelves or if you want to be prominently featured, you need to have a label. Uh, these are all things that could happen. They're not happening yet, but mm-hmm. but th- those, those are other paths to adoption.
0: Is there anything else on the topic of uh, privacy policies that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to say?
1: Um, So another project that that we're working on at at CMU is to solve the problem of walking into a space where you don't own the IoT devices, but you want to know if there are devices that are collecting your information. Uh, So this is work um, that my colleague Norman Sade uh, is leading, and the idea is that you could set up your smartphone or your smartwatch to be on the lookout for these devices. Um, And the devices themselves could broadcast information about uh, what their privacy policy is and what data they collect. Um, Or there could be a registry, um, which uh, all the devices in the building would be registered uh, and and, and you could find out what's there. And so um, uh, we've developed um, a protocol for this and, and some demos
0: what are some common devices that people might not know about uh, when they enter a building and what kind of information are they collecting
1: um, so increasingly these days uh, buildings have smart light bulbs smart thermostats uh, video cameras uh, sometimes they may have audio sensors vibration sensors um, th- so there there's uh, lots of sensors in the building lots of environmental sensors and you know many of these sensors, uh, are not collecting personal information. You know, they're, they're really just helping them, you know, maintain the HVAC system in the building. Um, but some of them um, are collecting personal information and they may be um, collecting video uh, and maybe doing face detection um, on the video they collect. Um, they may be tracking your cell phone uh, so they can track your path through the building. You know, in a shopping mall, they may be interested in where you go in the mall. Um, There are lots of reasons for doing the face detection, some of which might be things that people appreciate and some might be things that people would really rather not happen.
0: Are these IoT devices able to figure out who I am uh, if I walk into a store, if I walk into a building? Can they reach into my phone and figure out personally identifiable information?
1: Um, They may be able to, especially if they overlay the information they collect with other databases. So if they're doing face recognition and they have a database of faces, then they can match your face up with the database of faces. Um, If you uh, are buying something in a store um, and so you hand over your credit card at a point of sale, now they have your name and they might be able to match that with the ID on your phone. Um, So yeah, they may not be able to just recognize your phone without any other help. But there are multiple ways that they could get that help to connect it with you.
0: And why would they want to connect it with you?
1: Um, I can think of all sorts of reasons why they might want to connect it with you. Um, so I think, you know, the, the biggest reasons are probably related to marketing and, and sales. Uh, so uh, stores are interested in knowing their customers better so that they can, you know, better target and, and sell you more things, um, but, but there may be other uh, reasons that they would want to connect with you. Um, there, there may be public safety reasons um, in order to uh, know where people are in a building in case they have to evacuate in an emergency. Um, there may be law enforcement they find out you know, who was around when a crime was committed, um, all sorts of reasons.
0: Well, finally, you've been a a big advocate for diversity and inclusion in computer science. What advice do you have for women who are thinking about a career in this area, but might hesitate because they don't see equal representation in the field today?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, women have been underrepresented in this field for a while. Um, but uh, I think you know, we're starting to see some movement. We're, we're starting to see you know, in um, undergraduate computer science classes uh, at my university, we now have you know, 50-50 men and women. And there are increasing number of universities that, that are reaching that. Um, and so uh, things are looking up. Um, and uh, I would encourage uh, young women uh, who are interested in getting into this field um, to, to pursue it. And I I think I don't want to say that there there are no barriers, um, but I think that the barriers are decreasing. And I I think it is um, uh, very much open um, to uh, people of all kinds um, entering the computer science field.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation. I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Laurie Craner. Laurie is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science and engineering and public policy. I want to thank Laurie as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. Thanks as well to Emily Lawrence, Molly Sharlock, Neil Adelentar, and Steve Schultz. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. This concludes our second season of Cookies. Thanks for listening. Peace.